They say patience is a virtue, but I can wait as long as you do for a change. Call me insane, but that's my aim. Hello everyone and welcome back to Untelevised, the podcast, the podcast where we explore possibilities for social change, what it might look like, how we might get there and what part we might all play. I'm Fiseo and my co-host is Mona. How are you this week, Mona? Hi Fiseo. Yeah, it's kind of strange to be back after a little bit of a break, um, we we yeah, uh, which was which was needed, I guess, or enforced, or however you want to <laughs> to describe it. Um, it turns out it's tiring trying to create social change. So sometimes you know <laughs> things get in the way yes. of podcasting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and as always, there's been so much going on, hasn't there, in the world? Mm-hmm. Um, and we're working hard, as always, to add to the sort of wider toolkit of resilience and movement building and social change rather than be reactionary, which is difficult. um, But that's sort of what we're trying to do with the podcast, build a sustainable toolkit that you can refer to at any time. So it might seem strange that we haven't covered certain things yet, but trust me, we're we're getting there and we're trying to cover them in a way that will be sustainable even when maybe certain conversations change. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, big times. And I feel like when we were last recording, it wasn't summer and now it's suddenly summer and now it's not really lockdown anymore. And it actually feels like even if our last episode was only, I don't know, I don't even know when it was, weeks some weeks ago, back, yeah. it was like a different lifetime. So welcome to yeah, this new world Yeah, some positive order. social change has happened. <laughs> some positive weather changes some and some positive, positive um, yeah. social interaction changes, shall we say. Yeah, um, exactly. But yeah, when we did leave off, we've been discussing democracy. We had looked at democracy as a general theory, what that might be and how it might um, be presenting itself in modern society. And then we looked at two specific examples of applying democracy to our everyday lives. So we looked at democratic workplaces and we also looked at democratic housing systems. So recently we had some of the biggest elections uh, in the UK outside of a general election. There were 143 local councils being elected in England, 129 members of the Scottish Parliament being elected and 60 members of the Welsh Parliament. Um, So in the UK, anyone can run as a candidate. So um, we wanted to explore the idea of running as a candidate, what motivates people to do it, what the experience is like on a practical and emotional level, and also um, how you sort of garner success in running as a candidate. But I've reeled off enough stats. Should we jump into our learn, Mona? <laughs> yeah, yeah, why don't we do that? <laughs> A few more stats to come up. <laughs> okay, so as Fizeo said earlier, we've just come out of a load of elections in the UK. And obviously, um, with Untelevised, we do often speak to people that are fighting for social change in less formal environments, maybe sort of activists. And, you know, you've heard us have an episode on uprisings and workers' rights and socialism and all these things. But we're just going to return to the system for a second because we are all kind of bound by it and to it um, for better or worse. So um, anything that you don't feel is fully covered here, you can go back to our democracy, what is democracy episode in which especially Oliver really talks us through like a lot of the democratic systems within this country. 
But for the purposes of this episode, um, we are speaking to two people who have run at local election level, who have both been councillors in their local boroughs. So when we have general elections, which result in us actually getting a party um, into Downing Street and getting a new prime minister, the way we do that is at local level, we go and vote for an MP and they might be from Labour, Green Party, Conservatives, etc. And then there are, you know, over 300 different constituencies in the UK and the, the most, you know, the party that gets the most MPs elected is the party that ends up ruling our country. Now, even within your local constituency, underneath your MP, people also elect local councillors. And actually, even if the MP for your borough or your you know, local area is, let's say, a Labour MP, you could have a mixture of Green councillors, Conservative councillors, Labour councillors, etc., sort of within that. And the reason for that is that councillors represent or support an even smaller like subsection of a borough that we often call a ward. So in one borough, you may still have quite a lot of wards. I mean, especially in London, you have so many people, for example, living in a borough um, to really support like local residents. You might need a councillor that supports an even smaller group of the local area than the whole borough. And so a councillor's primary role is to represent their ward, um, to kind of be a bridge between the community, the local residents and the council. So that literally might mean that a housing association might raise concerns about parking or bins or whatever on their housing association. They can tell their local councillor and the local councillor will be the person taking it to the council and trying to fight and advocate for them and to get you know their, their views heard and their concerns heard. Now, we also in London have something called the London Assembly. Um, And that is because London has a mayor, which many big cities have, but not every city has. And the mayor, who we also elect at these local elections, needs to be held accountable by a body of people that sits around them um, and advises them, checks in, makes sure they're not kind of going off what they've said they're going to do, etc., etc. We have 25 London Assembly members who do this in this case for Sadiq at the moment, Sadiq Khan in London. Um, we just found out for Zayo and I that um, we've actually only had um, a London mayor for the past like 20 years, 21 years. It only got introduced in, two, in the year 2000, which to me feels really strange. You just assume some of these things have been around forever, right? And then we looked, up, looked it up and were like, wow, it's only been 21 years. So we had Ken Livingstone, who was a Labour mayor. Then we had Boris Johnson, who was a Conservative mayor. And now we have Sadiq, who is a Labour mayor again. And so the London Assembly meet with the mayor regularly. They um, question the mayor 10 times a year in a mayor's question time. And again, the people are voted into that assembly. And so, for example, one of our guests today, Sakina Sheikh, has just been voted into that assembly. Um, So she's still a local councillor as well, but can stand to also be voted in to the London Assembly. That was a long learning session. <laughs> it can get very confusing, can't it, Mona? Even as someone who lives in London, I'm like, okay. It's like, you know, um, when you watch the detective programs and they put the wire, the string to the different <laughs> suspects, it feels a little bit like that sometimes. But if you are a little confused, do head to our democracy episode because um, our guests there and our learn section there does break down some of the 
these concepts even further and discusses other things like our voting system, first past the post and different things like that. But don't worry if you feel slightly overwhelmed. It is just slightly overwhelming. And <laughs> even people that have lived in this area for, for um, decades get confused. So you're not alone there. So this week, I'm speaking to Sakina Sheikh. Sakina has been, first and foremost, an activist and campaigner for pretty much the whole of her adult and political life since finishing her law degree at university. She grew up in southeast London, where she is still based, and has in particular fought and campaigned for climate justice and works with the charity platform where she has executed a lot of her climate justice work. Over the years, she's been involved in many other social campaigns, including Key Power NHS Public, where she campaigned against the Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership, otherwise known as TTIP. In 2018, she was elected as a Labour councillor in Lewisham, and so has for the last three years worked tirelessly to advocate for local residents in her borough. Now, in the elections we just had in May, she stood and won um, to become part of the London Assembly, as we described earlier, where she will be one of the 25 London Assembly members holding the Mayor of London to account and where she in particular is keen to push for and deliver a Green New Deal for London. My life has kind of just always gone with the flow a little bit of like the issues that I felt most passionately about with the broader agenda of trying to make a more equal world, a better society, a place where people can flourish and be happy. And I suppose it began pre-uni almost um, and just being someone who was like politically aware of the world and interested in politics, but my parents wanted me to be a dentist, um, so I didn't really see how I could pursue any of those passions in, in the form of dentistry. So, <laughs> um, yeah, my teacher once said, you can't go and pour all of that charm into a mouth of bad teeth, which just, just makes me laugh. Um, so I think I, d I decided law as, I guess, as someone who was, at the time, didn't necessarily understand the different tools or mechanisms or processes one could try and, yeah, contribute to positive change in the world. Um, and, and I guess I had the opportunity to study human rights in my law degree, and I just realised that there was so much in the world that was, like, incredibly unjust, um, painfully unjust, and, like, sometimes even the some of the institutions that are that exist to protect us, um, whether that's the state or the UN, um, or even like large scale NGOs have also historically caused harm. And like, how do you reconcile that, right? Um, and just feeling like these really big kind of um, almost philosophical questions about like, yeah, like, are, is, is that inevitable? How do we protect against that? How do we find words and, and, and methodology of, of language and, and then turn that into law and then turn that into actions to protect um, people from harm uh, were like a lot of things I was grappling with as a law graduate um, and not really feeling like I had the avenue in the legal profession to pursue those, that kind of thinking and that kind of conversation so yeah when I left uni it was kind of just quite instinctive really it was like what where where can I go that allows me to continue and develop and deepen that, that thinking and answer those questions and so began with Reprieve and then keep our NHS public and I think it's, it's interesting isn't it because Reprieve is quite international um, and then Keeper NHS Public is quite like 
localized quite intensely suddenly. So I think I was also developing that kind of like, how do we, yeah, how does like local action impact international change or rather how does like international change impact local action? And again, I think that's also a conversation that um, through my work as like a local councillor, and now hopefully as a London Assembly member, that kind of like local versus regional thinking, I hope to kind of continue developing. Um, but yeah, at its essence, like just trying to make the world a place where everyone has opportunity. Um, and we go, I think this is not necessarily my language, but we go beyond the idea of surviving and think of a place of, um, of thriving. Um, I know it sounds so cheesy, but like, it's obvious, right? Like there is more than enough in the world to go around. It's just not being distributed properly. Like the idea that people are homeless or hungry is like mind blowing for me because there is obviously enough resources on this world to ensure everyone eats and everyone has shelter. Um, and, and, and that's the minimum, right? And we're not even at that stage. And like, on top of that, like, I believe that we have the tools and the access to give people education, to give people space and resources to be creative so people can actually, you know, understand why they exist on this, this earth, right? We all have like huge creative potential. Um, and that's often where we grow the most. It's often where we expand the notion of what feeling and looking and, and being free feels like. Um, and it's often when we define, you know, find the most profound forms of living, living full lives. Um, you've got me off on one now, Mona. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I knew, I knew I probably would, but that's kind of why you're here. Um, I mean, funny, I, I very much, I was so close to doing law for all the same reasons as you. And then it actually felt like a little bit like too much like hard work for me. And so I settled on the political philosophy kind of side instead. So I kind of went, I went a bit abstract. And now I wish I'd done the practical stuff. But, um, I don't think you've ever shied away from hard work, Mona. <laughs> no, maybe not, maybe not. But um, well, maybe I've been trying to make up for it ever since. But uh <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so Sakina, you kind of, you know, as you say, like from a, from a real place of like gut instinct and innate purpose, you kind of follow these passions and, and you kind of go towards like creating like social justice and then you sort of decide, okay, actually, like I, I maybe have the ability to do that by also changing and influencing some of our more formal structures and institutions, right? So then um, how did you decide like, what party to join and you know did you feel like there was actually enough like variety there you know did, did, did you look at one and go this truly aligns or did you have to say this aligns enough and I'll try and put myself in there and make some changes even there right I mean that must have been quite like a hard decision to make because you when you share your values with me I can't help but think oh I don't I don't know if there's and you know <laughs> what parties are there that fully represent that in, in its entirety at least in our mainstream yeah. system for me the way I see it is like whatever political party you join you should if you have like the baseline values that are the same you each member each each candidate each each representative should have the power and the capacity to shape and and steer direction of that that wider organisation. Um, I think it's it's an it was it was an interesting one for me because I think by the time I chose to run to be a local councillor, it was like 2017. Um, I think I had got to that point where I'd worked in a series of campaigning organisations that I had really valued and had been really informative. But I just got I think frustrated with the dynamic of being in the position where I was asking someone else to make the change, like through the, the process of campaigning, it was always presenting arguments to the, the decision maker. Um, and I think maybe at that point, I'd been doing it for about four or five years and I'd really begun to see the limitations of it. Um, 
and so I thought well I'm actually just going to try and aspire to be the decision maker um and so for me like joining the Labour Party was like very you know obviously the Tory party was out of the question uh the Lib Dems and the Greens had never really managed to make it onto my radar so it just seemed like really natural that the Labour Party would be the vehicle if I had taken on the position of like yeah going into a political party that I would join um and it's interesting because actually <laughs> what I hadn't foreseen is the limitations that can come with that that position I assumed that once you were in the kind of decision making role that the dynamic you essentially just take your campaigning into the political party um but you know there is like a whole host of especially when you enter institutions like local councils or, or any any other any other aspect of governance you have to learn the language that's used to do decision making in that space you have to learn the language of um yeah like uh, the, the processes that govern the way that those decisions are made and I've, i have found that tension quite hard at times actually of like the the liberation and the freedom that comes with campaigning is you can you know you, you can be unequivocal in the position that you take um and you can be incredibly creative and aspirational in, in the world that you want to see um and like sometimes reconciling that with the kind of like the bureaucracy or the governance that comes with political institutions is a hard one um and it's one that i'm constantly like yeah trying to how can i put this um reconcile yeah i think that's the word like how can i how can you and i think because there aren't there aren't actually an abundance of models or dynamics that exist like that sometimes it feels like forging a slightly different path which is why it feels like it's slower than I'd like it to be and it's harder than I'd imagined it would be. Um, but I think it's also quite necessary work because I think that that really sharp separation hasn't given us what we need. And I do think actually um, we're at a time where we are beginning to see a new wave of, yeah, like slightly younger politicians as well, but also different, different people enter that kind of institutional politics and say that we need a clearer space where we can you know that that sharp definition that sharp separation um cannot continue so yeah it's a as you can see even from my language talking about this particular aspect like i'm still forming it i'm still feeling the shape of it so no we've um we've had this discussion with quite a lot of guests and and we did an episode near the beginning when we launched a podcast on systems and on how you might change systems as opposed to mm. kind of on the outside and i mean I was going to ask you in a follow-up question whether you thought it was possible to change things partly or entirely via our system or whether we needed to do both. I'm, I'm feeling a bit like you've said we need to do both or come at it from multiple yeah. angles, but I don't want to put words in your mouth. Not at all. I mean, I think we need to do both, right? So like, again, when I was doing a lot of campaigning, half of the time um, in our campaigning you know, in, in the context of like activism and campaigning, I'd say 50% of the energy often goes into figuring out what the processes are that you need to change, um, where the decision-making is, what the timelines are, who the stakeholders are, who the, who the people actually who are the decision-makers are identifying them. And so I think that like, if you are people who are invested in like creating much wider change, looking at systems analysis on like, you know, what, what is the infrastructure of this, of the society that we live in and how do we, how do we aspire for change? Um, you have to know what the current systems are. You have to know what the current structures are. You have to understand that in quite a level of depth, I think. And I think for me, that's something that I found really profound in my kind of like last three, four years is like, 
the depth of knowledge that I'm privileged to be given the access to of understanding how our current systems work um, in a way of doing a much longer term thinking of informing the kind of change that we need. And like, even if you, for instance, look at our political, not even political, just like our current context of like climate change, right? Um, or like the climate crisis. I think we're at a moment where, you know, this will be a, a moment in history, I think, where we, we not only must, or like not only have the opportunity, but we absolutely must take huge action to mitigate the climate emergency. And that means like a huge amount of resources, political capital, but crucially like infrastructural change in our society and the physical makeup of our cities and our towns. Um, and so again, I think like having a position where you know what, those, what that infrastructure looks like currently I think is essential actually. And, and therefore to answer your question, I think you need both. I think that, that that needs that, those two worlds need to work in synergy rather than in separation, rather than the, the dynamic where campaigners ask decision makers and decision makers say yes or no. How do we move to models of like collaboration and co-production and participatory democracy, where we recognize that both of those institutions or both of those aspects of society have really powerful and necessary positions and expertise and knowledge, and one is not more important than the other, but actually in synergy, can we produce the best result and have that deeper meaningful change rather than a dynamic where, you know, certain groups on the ground are funded and then that funding is withdrawn at different points when the criteria changes and there's no sustainability in the, in the, in the grassroots power that's built. Um, but anyway, I think I'm going to go on forever. <laughs> I mean, I, I can certainly say firsthand that um, I think you've made, like, you know, I, I can certainly sit here and say that um, these are not just words. And, and, you know, one of the ways that we know you well is because you have advocated for us as a grassroots project a lot over the years and, you know, brought us into consultations like the London Leap. So I very much have seen the way in which this is not just, definitely not just like, campaigning language it's it's like a really a genuine action that's been followed through and and i see you navigate both those spaces in, in incredibly well um which is not an easy thing to do um so um I, because you're speaking so much about activism um sakina actually i kind of wanted to ask you you know activism has kind of almost like i mean it changes forms over the, the, the decades and years right and it's kind of become maybe almost like a bit of a trendy thing, or at least, you know, it, you know, it kind of goes through, you know, there is like a certain like a coolness or a trendiness that maybe has developed with it. And maybe that's expanded because of social media. And that means that the ways that people can be activists kind of has really changed. And it can sometimes really complement somebody's image or brand to like stand for something in a certain way. And then maybe you, ne maybe you never really know how much they really do on that issue, like beyond what is promoted. Um, what do you do you what do you think like what do you think of this potentially almost like commercialization of activism i mean do you think it is actually happening or do you think if anything mm. it's just become more widely accessible like is it being diluted is it becoming too easy to go yeah yeah, yeah i'm an activist because i did xyz or actually is mm. it just becoming available to more people in a more accessible way so i haven't necessarily thought about the commercialization of activism but i've certainly thought about the ngoization of activism mm -hmm. and maybe mm -hmm. there's like like a kind of, uh, they mirror each other as questions. Um, and I certainly think that like, yeah, I, I mean, I think the sad thing that I've seen for a long time now um, with a lot of the organizations that we've 
you know, I've had the privilege of working with on the ground is there has been some co-option of their identity. Um, you know, people who turn up for photo opportunities, um, people who kind of like, yeah, they come and do activism for like a day and then they feel like they have the, the authority to speak on, you know, like the variety of oppressions that occur in that organization or that that organization is attempting or that activism body is attempting to undo. Um, and I think for me, like what's sometimes missing from our like activism dialogue. And I think Fazana Khan talks a lot about like this is like transformational justice. So it's like doing that kind of like inner work as well as that outer work. So like questioning why we are in that space, why have we come and chosen to do activism and like, often we are campaigning or fighting or working or, or building a world that's fairer and more just and kinder and, 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 and has abundance. Um, but that isn't, those values aren't often or sometimes are not reflected in, in our behavior. Um, so sometimes we can see like people on the left or our comrades or activists actually are capable of causing a lot of like harm on an interpersonal level. Um, and for me, you know, that kind of feeds into that wider question of commercialization of activism, i.e. like people who are doing activism when, without necessarily questioning the intentions of why they're there. And I think that a lot of that work is also about, yeah, personal reflection. Like we can't just do work in terms of projecting what the world needs to look like. That, that also actually, it also needs to be done on a personal level. How are the values that you, you know, you promote in the, in the wider world embedded in your every single day practice? How, how is your behavior impacted by those values? Do you embody them? And so for me, I think if more people did that kind of inner work, um, like, yeah, it would, if there is, and there is absolutely like the commercialization or the NGOization of activism, I think it would do, a, it would A, undo some of that, but also I think it would create a much clearer gap between the people who are there to do the work who believe in a better world and are there, you know, they do the invisible work almost. Mm -hmm. And the people who are there just because they need to be visibilized in doing that work. No, definitely. And, and you know, with Untelevised, we've always really tried to, you know, we want to make, you know, social change um, more accessible, so to speak, right? As in we always, you know, we set it up being like, this is a platform where if people don't know everything yet and they haven't been an activist since they were 10 years old or whatever, that's okay. Like there is a point that you're allowed mm. to begin and you don't have to be an expert and there has to be a first step that you take, right? So we also, you don't want to be like, well, you're not qualified enough for this, but you also yeah, yeah, don't so want the the causes diluted, right? And you don't just want it to be okay to put an Instagram meme and then that covers a whole range of really, really complex issues and that's like enough, right? So it's a it's a tough balance and we're always like discussing it even internally in our team and, and, and how does that look mm -hmm. like and have therefore always tried to interview people that we feel really are doing things, as, you know, as well as maybe saying things. But um, so mm -hmm. speaking of doing things, um, I would be like people may, may maybe have no concept of what um, the life of someone in your position looks like. Like, you know, what is an average day in the life of Sakina or perhaps, you know, a, a local politician? Um, are there misconceptions about your work that you feel that people have that you'd like to set straight? You know, is there something you, <laughs> new? you, are, you do you want everyone to know that, you know, you're definitely not, I don't know, sitting on a really high expense account with your feet up or whatever. Like, is there anything that you think like now's the time to explain what I do and how I do it? 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't even know how to do expenses, so I certainly <laughs> don't. That's <laughs> certainly not the case. Um, the role of a local councillor—it's um, a privilege, but like I said, it's a tough—it's a tough gig because you're supposed to be able to do it around a full-time job and therefore it's not a paid role. You get like an expense or an allowance, which is like a yearly amount. I think it's like 10,000 pounds a year. Um, but if you calculate that alongside the hours that often one takes to do the role, it, it isn't a wage at all. Um, and we can have another conversation one day about whether it should be a wage or not. But I certainly think that what it does is it makes the role very inaccessible. If you're a carer, parent, you know, if you're a disabled member, um, a disabled person or if you're someone you know who has to like to be honest the majority of people work a job to pay your rent <laughs> um being a local councillor cannot cannot be something that you can sustain yourself on at all um and so yeah i think it creates a ex exclusivity of who can access that role um and yeah like the role of a local councillor yeah predominantly is concerned with caseworks, the people in the local area, whether that's housing, whether that's like the roads around them, uh, whether that's like their children's school, whether that's, you know, sometimes more basic things like the bins or fly tipping, any local issue that they have, the local council is supposed to be their first portal call, who will then act as a mediator and a bridge with council officers who will often do the resolution of the casework. Um, and then you have committees, um, so they could be again on like housing, the environment, um, they could be on planning, they could be on licensing, and, and that's essentially concerned with the wider governance of the area. Um, and so building that into my local, my London Assembly role, so the London Assembly has two types of members, constituency-based and London-wide. Um, I'm a London-wide member, so I'm really privileged to have a like the opportunity to think about the more strategic thematic issues in London, how can something in West London, you know, be like, what's the synergy between an issue that happens in West London and Southeast London? Are they the same causes? Do they require the same solutions? Um, and actually I'm gonna be doing work around planning and regeneration. Um, I've been given the brief to be the Labour spokesperson in City Hall for planning and regeneration. And I think actually that's, uh, it's an area right now where, well, particularly the Tory government are attempting to bring in planning reforms through the planning bill that could strip local councils of the power that they have right now to make localised planning decisions. And already, I don't think this is something that's controversial to say, but already I think that there are lots of examples across London where the local communities don't feel like they've had the opportunity to, you know, um, be involved in local planning decision and making as much as they would like um, and to think that actually the, go the government is aspiring to even remove that layer um, I think is really worrying and I think it would have really long lasting detrimental impacts on our capital um, so at the moment the synergy between my local council work and the London Assembly work is is I'm feeling really grateful for it actually um, you know other than the wonderful Perryville residents that I often get to work with and speak with um, if I'm thinking about it in the more political uh, aspect conversations around planning regeneration that I'm thinking about on a London-wide level to see the impacts of it localized um, so at the moment even in Perryville we've got a couple of developments coming up that will be building social housing and looking at the process of consultation that's taken place and getting that feedback from the community about you know um whether that works for them whether it doesn't that work for them i think that like if you're setting london-wide strategy to see how it takes place and how it's impacted and 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 what it, what it's like to be implemented on the ground is essential um 
So I'm not sure that's necessarily answered your question about what an average day looks like, but these are all the, the components that I guess make it up. Um, and then like, obviously there's like labor groups. So um, beyond the kind of broader constitutional meetings of the institutions, whether that's like the London Assembly, so that's mayor's question times, that's plenaries, um, that's the formal committee and I'll be sitting on the economy committee, the environment committee, planning and regeneration committee. You also have like the, the meeting of the labor group. So that's the labor members in that institution um, so that we can think about setting our own political strategic direction in that wider body and what we want to do with it. And the same is the case with the local council. Um, I don't know if I should stop talking because I could go on forever. <laughs> And yeah, I think this just shows that there is no such thing as an as, a, as an average day. And, and I guess people can sort of look into this a bit more if it interests them, this kind of work. Um, so, Sakina, you touched a little bit actually on, on, on this in your in your answer just now um, around, you know, with, for example, a councillor being an unpaid role that already creating some access barriers. So I guess just more broadly, like how inclusive or exclusive do you feel that the environment you work in is? Hmm. Again, as someone who has historically been involved in activism and campaigning, um, it's a very different culture, governance um, in institutions, um, like of, of, yeah, of that kind of level. Um, so I think there's a natural shift in the way of doing working that you have to adjust to. Um, like I said, at times I felt like I was learning a new language, the, the reports and the papers that you have to read for committees um, and the kind of way of asking questions to officers. There's like, yeah, there's an institutional language that you have to almost learn to be able to like navigate that space. And that was very hard. Um, and I would say that that isn't necessarily accessible. Um, it doesn't come with a handbook. <laughs> That's a lot of stuff you have to pick up quite naturally. Um, I think yeah, those institutions, whether they're local government or regional government, although they're made up of, like I said, I've got a lot of colleagues who are incredibly hardworking, incredibly committed, um, and yeah, you know, do a great job. Um, but I think it's also worth saying that these institutions don't reflect in just physical makeup, um, like the society that they represent. Um, like I think parliament is, you know, I think labor for instance in parliament has 50% female MPs. Um, but we still have many, you know, we still need to do a lot more to build the capacity of people for colour running in those positions, working class people, disabled people, um, you know, the representation of LGBTQ people, people in, in those kind of positions. And the same goes for local government. Um, like we need to do more to make those spaces representative and the consequences of those spaces not being representative is that they are not necessarily curated for, let's take, for example, young people. Um, I think as a young person in all these institutions, um, I often find that I have to navigate like an extra layer of proof that you deserve this seat at the table. Like you haven't done the work to get here or like you have to say something, you know, twice or three times as many times as maybe your counterparts um, to be taken seriously. And I think that that's, again, a real barrier to politics and a real barrier to those positions. And I think it kind of reverberates into why young people, like, you know, there's, there's a general like, um, when we look at like who comes out to vote uh, or yeah, who, who's registered to vote, there's a huge swathe of young people who aren't. Um, and it's often because I think that there's like a culture that isn't very welcoming to young people in politics that you don't get taken seriously. Again, as a woman, um, I experience those intersections as well and as a person of color. Um, so yeah, I think those spaces have a long way to go to be made accessible 
Um, and part of that, I do think, comes down to also who physically makes up those spaces, but also like, yeah, a broader cultural change in our politics, I think. Um, like, like I said, I think we spoke about this a couple of questions ago that there is a, there is a shift right now. There is a change of that kind of like the way of doing politics is changing. Like we want to be more collaborative, like we need to be more collaborative to find solutions that are actually, you know, powerfully community led and therefore benefit the people who need them the most. Um, and I hope, and I believe that that can also have an impact of changing our political culture. Um, so Sakina, you've touched already there on some of the challenges that you face um, in your work. I mean, would you say that there is any one thing that's like your biggest challenge or perhaps some of your biggest challenges and perhaps kind of who's to, you know, what or who is to blame for those challenges and can, can they be overcome? I mean, you've touched a little bit on personal challenges, but what do you feel on a daily basis? You're like, this is <laughs> the issue or um, in me getting my job done. I think you have to uh, accept a different pace of change that you do when you're a campaigner. Like when you're a campaigner, your campaign is, is normally like well, three months or six months or one year or like three weeks. And like you, you build a really powerful concerted effort to achieve a singular campaigning ask. Um, whereas like once you're in the political institution, like the broader pace of change is incremental. It's super slow. Um, and I think that that adjustment was really difficult because sometimes you can lose sight of what you're doing there, like what you're achieving, what the wider goal is. Because I think as a campaigner, it can be quite um, instantly reflective. Like it, it can be very quantifiable, right? Like this is our campaigning loss. This is us achieving it in three months time. Whereas like the wider role of governance is such that it's the yeah you know you're, the the institution is huge and the processes that like go into enabling or signing off on change are like long, um, and so I think that was that that's a that's definitely a like a, it's not a hurdle as such it's an adjustment that is difficult um, but also I think important and necessary if you want to be sustainable in um, again that that work of building that bridge between those two spaces. Um, yeah, it's it's a, an adjustment. And um, I guess, as you know, to, to get onto a more positive from that, I mean, what are some tangible wins? I mean, can you share some stuff with us that you did work on for a hell of a long time and then it did come through? Because I guess that's probably what people need to hear. <laughs> it's possible. Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, I, interestingly, I think probably the one example that I'll pick up is also something as a campaign process that takes a long time, but like the fossil fuel divestment. Um, so like, again, that was a piece of work that I led on at Platform for a couple of years before moving on to the London Leak project. And now we've got some other really fantastic campaigners working on it from Platform. But it's, you know, we're talking about shifting millions of pounds out of fossil fuel companies um, and, you know, redirecting those funds. And I think when we aspire to the climate, you know, meeting the climate emergency or the climate crisis, like, or taking climate action, we often don't put fossil fuel companies at the at the, the center of that conversation as like big bodies that will require um, you know to, to to fundamentally play an incredibly different role in the future if they play a role in the future, right? Like if their if their role is to to mine fossil fuels um, and sell them, like that is no longer compatible with like a climate a, fu a climate just future. 
So like the fossil fuel divestment campaign, I think over many years from campaigners has been phenomenal to see the kind of like, again, that cultural shift that it's enabled around um, climate change being a political priority that's necessary and a really practical way of contributing to the taking climate action and that being like actually moving a lot of money um, because capital is absolutely the linchpin of what enables that industry. Um, and yeah, again, uh, as a local councillor in Lewisham when I first started, um, it kind of, we're in, we basically committed to fossil fuel divestment, but there's still a lot of institutional barriers that come with that. Um, you know, whether that's the financial experts that often work with local pension funds. Um, and basically, you know, saying that it's not possible. So even that, for instance, was a two year process, but we're in a position now two or three years later where that money is moving. And I think that that's really, for me, really, really gratifying um, because that is also an example of what, what we're talking about, of like that, that synergy and that culmination of like campaigning work and institution work coming together, both parties bringing the importance of like institution, like of knowledge um, and affecting change. So I think for me, that was like, that felt very like, yeah, it's possible to see huge capital shift in the right direction. <laughs> Um, so Sakina, for anyone listening who um, is, is keen to kind of get involved in this kind of work, I mean, that could either be to sort of stand themselves um, mm -hmm. at some sort of, you know, local level, or maybe even just support the work of someone like you who is standing and to build capacity perhaps around a candidate. What are some maybe quite good, good first steps, low hanging fruits? What are some of the things that people could do to start that process? Well, I'm always, my door is always open if anyone wants to have a conversation about, um, yeah, how to like uh, navigate applying or, uh, yeah, becoming like a councillor or an assembly member. Um, but I would say the first thing is to join a political party because that is often the avenue through which you will get elected. Um, and yeah, think about which party reflects your values um, and your ideals. Um, but then also feel bold enough to whichever party you join to still be able to shape it um, and, 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 and accept that everything is a negotiation, like you don't get given a script, what, you know, you are able to, yeah, define the role that you play in that organisation. Um, get involved locally, like, um, you know, question, think about why you want to run in that position. I think being really clear with yourself about your motivations, your intentions, um, and then think about, yeah, avenues that you can already begin to affect that change. Um, so like, do you, you know, work in local charities, volunteer with local activist groups? Do you, um, yeah, then do you, do you attend local meetings? Um, and then I would say like, for instance, if you're thinking of becoming any of these things where it's like a local councillor or an assembly member or even like an MP, go and observe those roles. Like that's what I did before I became a local councillor. I went and I observed meetings in the council and I thought, yeah, actually I could see myself doing that. Or like, yeah, actually this really interests me. Or like, actually this is what I would do if I was in that position. Because I think that really clarifies whether that is what's right for you. Um, and then ultimately believe in yourself because it can be tough running and it can be tough being a candidate. Um, but you know, it's an, an incredible learning opportunity and it is worth it once you get elected. Um, and if your motivations are to, you know, make the world around you a better place, then more power to you. 
Yeah, let's hope we've not just encouraged anyone to run as a candidate who wants to make the world a worse place, in which case, yeah. like, just stop listening <laughs> right now. Um, please, please. Yeah, not for you, not for you. Um, Okay, Sakina, so I think actually, um, and I'm also very mindful that you have an incredibly busy schedule and you've given us your time and literally, you know, your fourth week of being a part of the London Assembly, which we're so grateful for. But I, we ask all our guests this, um, but when do you think that your work will no longer be needed, if ever? Ooh, good question. That's a great question. Well, I mean, again, I think like anyone working in social justice really should ultimately aspire to make their role redundant, right? Like you don't actually want to live in a world where you're continually having to help people who need help. You want people to be, yeah, in a position where everyone has the tools and the capacity and the opportunity to, to like live a healthy govern, like, you know, self autonomous empowered life. So, oh, good question. I mean, as soon as possible, really, right? Like <laughs> Let's hope so. as soon as we can get to a place like, like I said, I don't believe poverty is inevitable. So as soon as we can get to a place where our politics and our government structures and our society internationally, locally and regionally uh, is like invested in that belief and we see that reflected and changed in our institutions, in our politics um, and in the way that resources are distributed. Now this week I'm chatting to Pippa Maslin. Now Pippa is someone that I would describe as a prolific community activist. I know her because I work a lot in the borough of Merton where she lives and she's been at the forefront of a number of local campaigns in the area from fighting for her housing association to lower a bill for major works to campaigning to save her local hospital from demolition to helping to protect her local park from being used for events which disturb the wildlife and the surrounding neighbourhoods. Most notably, she's led a successful petition to the council to declare a climate emergency and review its current carbon reduction plans for the borough. She's a member of the Green Party, where she is the Merton Membership Secretary, and she stood as a candidate for the party at a number of different local elections in 2017, 18, 19 and 21. So she's very practised at running as a candidate. Alongside all of this, she also has a full-time job as a caseworker for the local deaf and disabled people's organisation, Merton Centre for Independent Living. So I'm going to pass the mic to Pippa now to explain a bit more about her journey, her motivations, and why she feels being so politically involved is an important part of being a member of society. Politics, for me, was something that I felt compelled to get involved in when austerity measures started to happen. That was the pivotal point for me. I could not believe that there was a party that had been voted in who were, whose ideology is such that they want to destroy what I see as the fabric of civilized society as in public services, the welfare system, the pillars of education, of healthcare, uh, the emergency services. And I felt that I couldn't not act in some way. And the first manifestation of action was campaigning to save, save Helia Hospital, the local hospital. 
because it was, as it still is, under threat. And I think because my father, his health had deteriorated and I had become a carer, I think that health issues became paramount in my mind and these two aspects of my life, this anger at austerity measures and what was going on with my family came together. And I, and I started to, to follow politics more closely. So I ended up going to the inaugural Auster uh, People's Assembly Against Austerity in 2013. And it was that event which made me see that there were various other aspects of society other than health, uh, other than NHS issues that I wanted to look at. Then what came along was something, again, very personal. I'm a leaseholder with Clarion, who are the UK's largest housing association, and they served myself and fellow leaseholders on the estate on which we live, a major works bill, which was incredibly unreasonable. And the workmanship was not good. We managed to beat the bill down by about two thirds, which I think is a significant achievement. Not everybody was so lucky, but all of these things came together and I started following politics much more closely at a local level then and to be frank I asked the councillors for my ward for help with what was going on with Clarion and some other issues and I'm afraid to say that they were not helpful so I thought to myself well if these elected representatives aren't going to help me then I'm going to have to help myself and help others around me too. It's really interesting what you say there because it really aligns with what we are messaging which is that everything is political and essentially it's not just sort of Westminster and Boris Johnson and Parliament everything from what we eat our housing our health which are all things that you've mentioned is based in political decisions so it really interests me where some people are mobilized to do something about it and other people might not even identify um, that these things are motivated by politics or the part they could or should maybe have a part in playing in shaping these things. Um, so it's fascinating to hear you speak about um, your sort of entry point into things. And uh, I find it really interesting um, exploring how people choose which party to join. And you spoke of some of your reasons um, when you were choosing, did you feel that there was enough variety to pick from? Because I think one of the common criticisms of modern politics, at least in the UK, is that the way things are set up means that we have so limited choice as an electorate, but also maybe as someone looking to join a party or play a part in a party. And I think as a Green Party member, you're probably especially frustrated with this in terms of your votes versus your representation and your power and your access to power. Um, What's, what sort of your thoughts on this um, in terms of the variety of the parties we have to pick from, but also then maybe feeling that you have to compromise some of your values if a party doesn't completely align with you? 
it's arguable that there isn't enough choice out there, but I think that that's because we have such a an antiquated form of democracy in the UK, in as much that the majority of elections are first past the post, as opposed to some kind of form of proportional representation. And I think that until us, uh, we have some electoral reform, which allows smaller parties more access to power, I think that in a way people's choice is already, it, it's more limited than it actually is. There are a number of parties out there as, as we saw in the Maryland London assembly elections. Um, but I just, I think there are probably a lot of people out there who would be hesitant to join them because they would probably worry that they wouldn't ever get access to power because the system as it's set up doesn't allow them. And I'd go further to say that it's something that probably troubles every Green Party member. Because who wants to necessarily keep on being the protest party, as it were, the protest vote, the ones who feel like they're putting the pressure group on the bigger parties, namely, Tory and Labour. And I really feel that our democracy is old enough to move on where we stop lurching between these two huge parties who, for various reasons, could be uh, seen to be not so dissimilar, <laughs> which which raises the question of if, if, is there even a choice really between those two? Are, are you really getting something different if you vote for either of those? So I won't, I won't say now if it's okay, I won't expose what particularly in the Green Party bothers me at the moment, because still overall, I feel that this is the right fit for me but I don't mind admitting at all. I think it's healthy to say that there are some things which I'm not entirely comfortable with. And I find that hard because I see somebody, I, sorry, I see myself as somebody with integrity. It's really important to me. And I don't want to, and I, it's also very important for me as I'm sure it is for everybody to be understood i don't want to be misunderstood and and that in, so i don't want to be judged against what somebody else in my party has said that i disagree with and i would like to i hope i like to think that emotionally sensitive <laughs> critical thinkers out there will understand that that is what a party is like it does have it, it is the case that there is disagreement and that that's not a bad thing. It is something that has troubled me sometimes and does continue to sometimes trouble me. And any political party is going to have a range of personality types. You're never going to get it where everybody agrees on absolutely everything. It wouldn't be healthy for 
everybody to agree on absolutely everything. A party wouldn't end up having robust debates that move it forward. You need to have those debates where you're thrashing things out, whether it's at local party level or whether you go to a conference or whether you want to go for an internal position of responsibility. And, and there's all sorts of mechanisms within the party, within a party machine uh, to, to disagree and to find consensus in the end. What matters is that, it, I suppose, for the electorate in the end is that you can't have too much disagreement because the electorate will get, will get extremely confused as to what you stand for. And they won't know what they're voting for, which is something that I think I'm going to level at the two main parties at the minute. I think there's a lot of confusion about what both of them stand for right now. And I, I'm, I'm not sure it's something that any party can solve, but yet in a, to conclude, it, it, I do find it difficult, but overall I'm looking at what the Green Party is doing and saying, and I'm still feeling that this is a vehicle that I want to be in and helping to move it forward. Hmm. Absolutely. And I think that's a healthy attitude to have, especially what you said about the fact that actually complete harmony isn't productive or isn't um, the right environment for politics because you want some healthy disagreement and difference of opinion in order for debates to arise and in order for solutions to be found, which is actually a really interesting point of view. Um, I think what you said towards the end there about maybe parties veering from what they've traditionally stood for and merging as together and becoming more and more central and is um, an issue that not only party members are feeling, but the electorate's feeling. What I find really interesting about you, Pippa, is actually you sort of attack politics in so many different ways. So I want to ask you a question about fighting for change within and outside of systems, because it's something we've explored before in the past. Our second episode actually looked at whether it was possible to change from inside a system. So as someone that works for a local council, as someone that works as an MP, um, or whether it was most effective to fight from outside of a system like you do with an organization like MSIL, where you lobby and you um, petition and you protest and you use mechanisms like that. So. In your experience, what have you found to be more effective or is it more a combination of both that needs to happen for change to happen? I'm going to go for the it takes both for sure. Um, but it is a question that I do ask myself quite a lot because with Merton Centre for Independent Living, I feel that I am, as a caseworker, I'm helping people to negotiate a cruel or largely cruel welfare system and a fragmented, troubled social care system. And I do sometimes wonder whether I would be better off trying to get a job within the Department for Work and Pensions, for example, or within the local council and the adult social care team, because 
fighting the system is exhausting. And I suppose I, I got fed up quite quickly of being on the outside. That's why I then stood as a candidate. I am fed up with looking at people in positions of power and seeing them making decisions that I disagree with, um, seeing them not collaborating with constituents in the way that they should, not, not harnessing the community's energy. And so I thought, well, I'll, I'll try to be your position and try to harness community energy. So the reason I'm choosing to put my energy into the Green Party is because I'm about policy change. I'm about system change. Nothing will change on a macro level if the politics doesn't change. The politics is the framework. These are the politicians are the decision makers. They're the ones who are setting the rules of this game of life. And I still go out on protests and I still wave the placards and carry the banners and all that sort of stuff. But I got tired of that. I wanted to see if I could, yeah, be somebody who helps to shape things and not be the, not be reactive all the time as, as the system forces us to, to be like, unfortunately. Yeah, I mean, completely, completely, completely resonate with what you've just said there around methods and exhaustion and sustainability and tactics and all of these things. Um, again, Mona and I talk about this a lot. And one of the places personally for me um, that brings this up is uh, the Black Lives Matter movement. So initially I went to every protest. I was passionate. I was marching, I was signing petitions. And then last summer in the iteration in 2020, I just said to Mona, I feel so exhausted. <laughs> and I haven't even been doing this for very long. You know, I'm in my twenties and already I feel so exhausted. Um, and one of the things that we've been discussing is, yes, there's such an importance for uprisings and actually our guest in our socialism episode um, spoke about uprisings as being sort of the catalyst for any change. Like there has to be some sort of mobilization on the ground in order for society to change. But also we talk a lot about the mar marathon versus the sprint. So there are sprint actions like protesting, but they also have to be coupled with some, for some sort of tactical, long-term strategic actions that sustain things. And again, we've seen this with Black Lives Matter so many people will mobilize hundreds of thousands, millions around the world. And just a year later, some things have changed, yes, but a lot of things haven't. And a lot of systemic things haven't. And indeed, we've had reports come out that say institutional racism doesn't exist. <laughs> so so um, it's about yes. finding that balance. And one thing I want to ask you about in relation to that, actually, is this notion of performative activism. So we do find around a lot of these protests and mass movements that a lot of people join in, in maybe very um, uh, surface level ways. Maybe they post something on Instagram, maybe they do attend a protest, they have a picture of a placard, but it's almost as if activism has become commercialized in a sense, um, and it's become trendy to be an activist. 
As someone who identifies or has previously been an educator, a secondary school teacher, and now you do sort of, you ed educate about activism and um, advocacy, I'm presuming that education is something that's important to you, but where do you think the line stands between education and real life action, if that makes any sense? So I personally am really happy that people are educating themselves and becoming more aware of issues, but I do wonder how useful it is or how sustainable it is to have this sort of commercialization where activism is seen as a trend rather than a lifestyle or a career as it used to maybe traditionally be. I have to say that social media has got to be a massive part of this. Social media has generally encouraged a, a surface level engagement with issues that are much more complicated than posts would would seem to indicate and that there are people who i don't i hate the term when people accuse others of being virtue signalers but i i know why some people say that because sometimes the post does seem so superficial from some people when you look at how they carry on in the rest of their life and you see them posting something which yes if you didn't know them it would come across as progressive but ultimately as i said earlier in this interview I, I i'm into integrity so i'm looking at what everybody's doing and i'm looking at what they're not doing and saying as well and 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 you know, people become, become become these social media influencers and they can make whole livings out of going around doing things like picking up trash in a certain place or I, I don't know, I'm, I'm, there are countless examples out there and I have wondered about that because I've never seen myself as an influencer in that way. I've just posted things that I feel strongly about and that I want other people to know about uh, and yeah that I think so in that sense it's, it's it's educational but it's also about engendering a sense of solidarity so we are we are in an age where there is a there is a danger of a lack of integrity I, I would say you do need to be careful but in a way in in the political world that's not that's not been totally alien. You've always, I, I, I think for a long time, I can't say always because I've not been around since politics began, but I think you've long had career politicians. So I think there's a connection to be made between the, the activists who, who haven't got integrity and the career politicians as well. Um, so I would advise people to think about narrowing their focus really and doing something getting into something properly and not just, and it's something that I've had to learn myself too, because as a candidate, I will admit that during really heavy campaign mode, when you're getting more attention than ever on social media, it can be very tempting to see that you agree with something uh, because you want people to like you and vote for you. But you have to ask yourself every time, do I really want to align myself with that? 
No, absolutely. That's a really actual valid um, perspective in the sense that, because I agree with you, sometimes I marvel, I'll speak to a 13-year-old and they have language even beyond my language about certain issues. And I'm like, wow, this is amazing. But I agree with what you said there about education and learning and taking things on, but then maybe being selective in what you go forward with and what you're passionate about. So you can be educated on causes outside of things that interest you or affect you, but maybe be selective then in what you put your time into because it's physically impossible to support everything. So maybe it's better to support a few things well than post about everything and not actually physically do anything <laughs> to support them. Um, yes, and yes, and there's that difference between posting stuff and going along to a meeting. Anybody can go on on a social media platform and mouth off <laughs> but it takes a lot of dedication to rock up to that first party meeting for example and continue and help to shape what then happens in those meetings and help to engage with members and try to get new members and yes numerous numerous aspects obviously to it all uh it doesn't always give you an immediate sense of gratification. <laughs> it's indeed quite the opposite. It can, you know, it can, it can be long-winded to get to certain places, but it's a, I, I'd encourage people to have more conversations, preferably face-to-face -face than not, rather than ping, 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 ping. <laughs> because also take something like Twitter, you only got a certain number of characters and I know you can do a thread but there's something about that that I don't like it curtails the conversation it is I, I, I like people to be concise but pithy can also be superficial sometimes yeah and it can, and leave, it can remove it can nuance from conversation yes exactly that is it it removes nuance yeah which is exactly and, why we um transitioned to having a podcast where we could have more long form conversations because we found that we were minimizing ourselves to one minute to post Instagram videos and we just couldn't say or have the conversations that we wanted to. Um, so yeah, I completely agree that social media has its place and it can connect you with people all over the world and issues you might never have heard about. So I know something's going on in Colombia at the moment, we've got Israel and Palace, all of these things, but definitely has to be coupled with actually being out there and involved in the immediate environment around you and taking that passion to, to the immediate environment around you. And on that note, I, I want to, we've spoken a lot about your motivations, but I want to speak a little bit more about the practicalities. So you've just run as a candidate. What did that entail? What did that involve? What did you actually have to do? What did I have to do? <laughs> what didn't I have to do? It, there's, there's an awful lot. Let's try to give a summary. Okay, so on one level, on an in, in, internal party level, you have to do a lot of organizing of your members and anyone else who wants to help the party. So you have to, because leafleting is an integral part of campaigning and that organizational aspect is very time consuming. I'm not the only one, of course, in the party who did it. 
you have to do the leafleting as well. You have to get to know your manifesto because you didn't write the whole manifesto. And to go back to an earlier part of our conversation, you have to think about what you think of the manifesto, whether you feel that you agree with everything in it or not. And you get invitations to hustings to do. Uh, they were all online this time. There's a lot of preparation for hustings because you could be asked about anything. <laughs> and it's, although you shouldn't pretend to know about everything, it you feel that you have to have a handle on a lot of what's going on locally and nationally. So there's a lot of learning to be done, I would say, in the lead up to that. Um, one also gets a lot of email inquiries from people looking to vote for you. What do you think of this issue? What do you think of that? Sometimes that leads to conversations on the phone or face to face on online or on the doorstep. In this day and age, I think there's no escaping having a presence on social media. And so not just posting things, but people tend to like videos these days. They, they seem to be particularly effective ways of communicating. And so you have to become your own little producer of videos as well. I, I'm, I mean, I'm saying this as a Green Party person specifically, and I don't know if it's like that in other parties. I do sense that in bigger parties, there is a machine which has which means that candidates get a lot of things done for them that in the Green Party, it just doesn't happen that way because we're, because we're smaller. Um, that, so that, I mean, that's all the stuff on a, that's, that's, that's a, a list of the kind of the tasks that you would have to do, but there's a whole other side to it, which is the emotional aspect of this and I would encourage people to, to try to build an emotional kind of resilience for themselves because you make a mass, you take a massive risk in putting yourself out there. You put yourself out there in a way where people are not just going to be, you're putting yourself up for judgment. And as, one, as much as one, I think, can try to prepare oneself for that it's inevitable that you will feel hurt and you've got to have mechanisms for picking yourself up after that for me as my partner will attest talking things through with someone who you love and who loves you back is really good and also on a very personal note i go for really long walks i wander about here there and everywhere and i get captivated by the natural world as it goes through the seasons uh, and so those i say i say oh eating as well eating nice things that's also very important to me too um so yeah so you have to i would encourage people to, to develop mechanisms for when you're hurting in terms of 
Time organization, that's also something else that's really important. Throughout both campaigns, I was doing my day job and I took no leave for it. So that meant on a really practical level that once I'd finished my day of work, I started my second job of being a candidate. And I even felt that I was spending more hours on the campaigns at, in some, yeah, at some points than I was actually on my day job. And when you're not being paid for that and when you're feeling exhausted, that doesn't feel great. I, I think, I think, I think that's anything- really important, actually, because literally, even when you began to speak, I was just thinking, this sounds like a lot of time and capacity. And aside from sort of um, maybe the exhaustion and stuff that comes from that, I think on a very practical level and an important level, to me, that speaks to maybe poss- the possibility of exclusion. Some people might just not be able to do this because of that a commitment um and for me maybe some of those people are the people that we most need (laughs) to be to have their voices heard so I'd love to know what your personal experience from within has been of that did you find these spaces to be very exclusive um purely because of maybe first of all there's so many elements of this so time is a big one but also um knowledge and access to how you even begin these processes like we've spoken about before the idea that there are people who are career politicians and that certain people go into politics and all of that but definitely time must be a really big one that excludes people from even starting on this process when I was a teacher I would do um like 60 hour week and that was my I would say to myself Pippa, that's what you're doing for society. That's the good that you're doing. And when it came to holiday time, yes, there was always prep and marking to do, but you also got a good portion of holiday time and you could just completely get away from it all. You felt no sense of responsibility because you'd worked so hard the rest of the time. If I still had a teaching job, there's no way I'd be doing this politics stuff now. I could not fit it in. I would absolutely not have the energy. It's because I'm doing a job now, which, yeah, it takes its emotional toll for sure, but I'm doing fewer hours. And it's a job where I don't, I I take stuff home in my head, but I'm not expected, like with teaching, to take stuff home otherwise. So, Yes, if I was in a different, if I was in teaching or, or another job which, which demanded so many hours, then I, I literally wouldn't have the time to have done this. I've also asked myself many times, uh, what, would be, what would things be like if I had children? When I see a candidate, a fellow candidate who has a child or children, I am staggered at how on earth they manage in terms of time. I don't know how you look after a little person and have a job potentially you know paid work on top of that and and do activism on on top as well and I also wonder about whether mm, whether political parties and and I'll include the Green Party in this are good enough at reaching out to people who are 
are not going to naturally go to a website for a political party start looking through what's on there. Mm -hmm. There are other ways of reaching people. If someone could pay me to go out and have conversations all day with people about the stuff that matters to them and how we can make change to it, it, the, the, the change that they want to see, I would love, I would love that because that's like one of the best parts about the politics. It's having the conversations with people, mm -hmm. just working, just listening to other people's perspectives, working out where you're aligned, where you're not aligned. You learn things from them. They learn things from you. Um, so it's about finding whatever, rather like with my job, with deaf and disabled people, every, every service user has an access issue. We can think of every human being in this way. They have an access, they have had their access issues and we've got to find out what these are. Like, it, I have wondered sometimes even about Merton Green Party meetings. Like we don't insist that someone's a member in order to be able to come to a meeting. We like people to be able to turn up and try us on for size, as it were. Uh, and, 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 and most of the time I think our meetings are okay, but sometimes I have worried that people have come along and they've heard us talk about, we get into the like really nitty gritty of stuff or we refer things that they don't necessarily know about and we haven't got the time in the meeting space to be able to get them all caught up on it. And then, and then we failed in that way because we haven't met their access need. No, I couldn't agree more that the most important part of all of this is, well, maybe not the most important part, Action's also important, but conversation comes very high up in the list of priorities for me. And that discovery, imagination, exploration of the possibilities is really high up, which I guess is why I talk a lot for a living. <laughs> but and yes. I capture people talking a lot for a living. But um, OK, we've spoken about some of the challenges there. And I think that's a really important one. Who's in these spaces and who might be excluded from them for various reasons and also um what being in these spaces might do for people who aren't from privileged backgrounds but are sort of trying to carve out space to make the time and capacity um but i want to move on to maybe some successes is there any successes if someone's listening and thinking boy oh why would i go into this this sounds horrible <laughs> sounds sounds like it's destructive on my life and really really <laughs> Um, have you got any personal success stories that might re-motivate people <laughs> to get involved or any okay. work that you're really proud of to share with our audience? I do, yes. And I will just say now, though, before I get started on that, that I really hope that what I've said doesn't put people off. <laughs> I suppose I didn't want to shy away from the fact that it is hard work. No, I think our, I think our audience is hardy enough. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure they are. Absolutely. So there are a number of successes, but I've got to say that my major success is having led a successful petition to the council to declare a climate emergency. And what happened there was that it, it didn't start with a petition, actually. It started with a question to full council. So if people out there who are listening don't know that you can ask questions of your full council, you can. It, it depends on the local authority as to exactly how you get to do that. But uh, in Merton Council, every time there's a full council meeting, you can submit a question a certain number of days before. And you can also turn up 
and you can get your answer in person in the council chamber um, and ask a supplementary question, should you so wish. So ask the council if they would declare a climate emergency and commit to reducing uh, yeah, carbon reduction plans in the borough by 2030. And I didn't really get much of an answer from them. So that's when I started my petition. It goes back to that, that what we were talking about, about having conversations with people. You had to have a conversation with most people. Most people who I and the, those who helped me approached, and we're talking about, you know, on, on just on the street, outside tube stations, um, park runs, farmers markets. And uh, whilst you get some people who will, yeah, absolutely, I'm on board, just hand it over, I'll sign it. A lot of people, you have to have a conversation. And that was a really fascinating process in itself. I learned a lot from that. Where it went was led uh, the cabinet member for adult social care, health and the environment to say, would you like to have a conversation about how we could move to carbon neutrality in Merton? And so I was, I was delighted actually that that cabinet member was up for that because without that, what wouldn't have happened, sorry, what happened wouldn't have happened. He then went to the people in the other political parties on the council and said that the council thinking of passing this motion, making this commitment, would they be on board? And it all culminated in a, a council meeting in July 2019, where we handed the petition in. And by that point, enough conversations had happened between all of the political parties to make it so that the declaration of the climate emergency was passed unanimously. Every single councillor went for it. And it's, it's not just that that happened and that I was the one who started it off. It's also that it, it went and it's, and it's still going to good places because what then was formed in the wake of the declaration was a climate emergency working group. So residents were invited to apply to be part of this group who work with the council to come up with a climate strategy and action plan. And then in the wake of that, you now have a climate action group, which is about the implementation of the plan. So I'm not going to claim credit for everything that I've just described. I, I am very proud to say that I was the one who first said to Merton Council, hey, want to declare a climate emergency? Want to review your carbon reduction plans? Um, and that actually went somewhere and it's still going somewhere. So change is slow. Uh, you know, and, we, and we have, we, I think we'll, we, the community, will never stop having to be vigilant in that way, uh, holding our elected representatives to account in that way. Commitment. And, and that's incredible. Congratulations. And you should feel proud of yourself. Um, and, 
you included in that so many different tips that people can take away from your personal success. But if you were to summarize um, sort of like a highlight of your top tips for people, whether that be running as a candidate or running a, camp- a successful campaign, what would your sort of, I guess, top three top tips be for people or just one top tip that you would want to share with people um, if they themselves want to start getting involved in either campaigning, lobbying or running as a candidate themselves? Without using people, because we don't want to do that, also recognise that there are people in one's life. I should imagine who... For, for anybody, you know, a lot of people can, who have a lot of different skills, skills that you don't have, skills that can help with your, with your campaign. And my experience tells me that people are far more open to helping out than I anticipated. I have this tendency to think that it's going to be a burden if I ask somebody to do something. But what has really surprised me this year is I've been so touched really by how people in Merton Greens and and not other community and friends in other parts of the country have been supportive in ways that I never anticipated at all. I don't mean that to sound like I underestimated them, but it turns out that I have friends who have all sorts of abilities when it comes to leaflet making or editing videos or writing brilliant social media posts or organizing leafleting rounds, for example, like knowing how to know how many houses there are in a road. So how many leaflets do you need to print? You know, that kind of thing. Mm. Um, So, and, and and, and, and and the weird thing is people seem to like being part of something as well. So there's the bonus of that too. And now if someone doesn't want to help, they'll make it clear to you that they don't want to so don't be afraid to to reach out and it's much more enjoyable that way as well it it really is yeah and that's something that I've been increasingly learning now that my work is much more focused on grassroots organization movements and things around social change is the power of your network and also collaboration which I think in a lot of the spaces I've traditionally been in in places like the mainstream media, there's a lot of competition and spirit of competition, but actually I found the power in the complete opposite. And like you say, actually often people can and want to be involved and there's so much power in um, collaborating rather than competing with people. Um, So to end, I mean, you do so much Pippa that I actually don't know how to classify what I would call your work. But a question we like to end on with the people we speak okay. to is, when will your work no longer be needed, if at all, if you can ever see a time when it might not be needed? And I'm going to add one today in the spirit of what you said um, in not doing things alone. What might our listeners do to help you along that journey? <laughs> oh, nice. I like it. I like it. Okay. Um, I've never really thought of my work ever being done. <laughs> and I don't mean that to self-self to sound self-aggrandizing in any way, as if my work is any more important than anybody else's. But uh, I know enough about myself at the age of 45 to know that I am always wanting things to be better. I'm an idealist. I am, on the whole, an optimist. And so 
I, I don't believe society is ever going to get to a point where there's not going to be some injustice. Of course, of course, I want it to be that there's no injustice, but there's always going to be some injustice going on. And where there's injustice, I can't rest. <laughs> I can't be, be, I can't feel, yeah, that I, I can't just sit back and I can't step back from it. Um, but in terms of what people can do to help me, well, reach out to me, talk to me. If there's, any, if there's anything that I have said or anything that I say in the future on whatever platform, that if it chimes with you and if it seems to be something that you feel you have time, not just the inclination, you know, the time as well to be able to, to do something about it, just contact me and let's see where we can go with that. Uh, oh, that's all I kind of want. That to me is help in itself. It's just getting to understand people better. And if it can then be, uh, we have a sense of solidarity about something and, and, and that can lead to some action, some, yes, some, something practical happening, then fantastic. Just start the conversation. If, if you're brave enough. <laughs> okay, so two passionate, passionate interviews there and interviewees and so many insightful things as usual that we can, we can pick out of their interviews and discuss a bit further. But what do you want to pull out this week, Mona? You know, I think actually a little bit like our systems episode, um, just this idea again of like, you know, living... <laughs> applying ourselves in quite holistic ways, you know, to, to causes. And here are again, two people who are going, I'm coming at it from all angles <laughs> and then hopefully something will stick. Like I'm going to go via the mainstream system because we can't deny that it's there and it influences everything we do. I'm going to fight from the outside. You know, I'm just going to try and have integrity in everything I do, but I can't maybe just do it in one place, right? And do it in silos. So I think similarly to our two guests on our systems episode, that that really kind of stands out, right? And then within that, you just go, bloody hell, like these people have energy, right? Like they, they just have dedication because as Pippa in particular explained, like full-time job and something that is also serving people and then, you know, campaigning on top. And Sakina said it too, a counsellor role is not really paid. You know, you're, then you also have another job. And anyway, so these two people, I think you could hear on both of them how much they're dealing with in their daily lives. No, funny, because those the commitment and um, the inside-outside dichotomy were the two things that stood out the most to me as well. But I think of both of those, the commitment was just the one that like blew my mind a little, um, from the physical to the emotional, time, money, capacity. I, I just remember listening to them both speak and thinking, wow, um, because it's not only, like you say, during the campaign, but also once you're in the role. And it was interesting to hear from Pippa. I'm not sure if it was the same for Sakina because I guess she's in a slightly bigger party that has more mainstream success and resource, but that she said she had very limited party support, actually, not support um, morally, but like in terms of capacity, time and money in actually doing these things. So it just makes me think of the resilience that must be needed, but also 
a certain a certain level of privilege in those areas not necessarily wealth privilege but some form of time privilege or emotional privilege or just physical you know resilience that you have that might be needed for these roles and and then that always brings me back to the idea of who does that then end up excluding from the conversations um but also what does it do to the people that do decide to enter these arenas um and the idea that activism is a chosen lifestyle um, and does that come with inevitable struggle and sacrifice or is there a way that we can make it so that people that are involved and are making social change can also have like a level of comfort to their lives I know or do you know so it brought up all of those sort of questions for me when I was listening to them I mean, it kind of, again, brings us back to, you know, I mean, you and I, we, we asked them both, didn't we, about the commercialization of activism. Um, and I think, you know, on one hand, you have this, um, you know, half of you is going, yeah, you know, workers' rights, um, you know, quality of life for all people, et cetera, et cetera. Like, we absolutely shouldn't have people kind of fighting and becoming martyrs and burning themselves out. And then on the other hand, you have this idea of the integrity, maybe even that Pippa talks about, and actually people going into it for the quote unquote right reasons and maybe not to earn money or not to have an expense account. And how do you manage that? And I remember my mum who has been a lifelong activist kind of saying to me at one point, God, you know, the idea that we would get paid for our activism when we were doing it, it's just a a bit obscene. And obviously, yes, sure, if you could, but the whole point in a way is that your activism is fighting against the system that runs on money and runs on trade and runs on capital, right? So if you're then going to go pay me for my activism, it's like, well, who's paying you and what is their motivation for paying you? what becomes your motivation for doing it as well and how yeah exactly how do you maintain integrity and all of these things and I completely agree which is why I think it's actually a dilemma because I completely agree and acknowledge all of that and I do think it has to come from that place to begin with definitely but then I do wonder about the sustainability of it and the accessibility of it because to be honest with you, even being able to take that stance does come from a slight privilege you have to have some access to something because we all need to survive and unfortunately survival is linked to money in our in the system that we have at the moment so I think that are possibly even some people that wouldn't be able to make that choice and say yes I can sacrifice all of my evenings and I can do x y and z in order to stand as a candidate you know um and I think this harks back to what we talk about a lot which is just making politics more accessible for people and that is something I think Sakina mentioned a lot as well that really um, stuck with me, which was the understanding of the tools and the mechanisms and the processes and the language. I feel like I say this every episode, but teaching it in schools, um, just from both um, encouraging engagement, but also just this practical knowledge. And hopefully in that way, we will open it up to um, slightly more people um, and make it more of a realistic arena for more people to be in. I mean, Sakina kind of said in her interview, like, you know, she did put a little pin in it and said, you know, we can have a discussion another time about whether the role should be paid or not. And I think that's kind of her saying that's in itself a discussion to be had. Right. And I guess you could look at it and sort of say then, you know, ideally, maybe if you were part of a party infrastructure, that's maybe then where they would 
maybe they'd cover things like your childcare or, you know, maybe there are ways that you do something where it's not maybe as directly putting money in your pocket, but it is kind of saying we will allow you in every way to do the job, which is indirectly kind of financial, right? But also when you then look at MPs and we heard a lot about MPs expense scandals, you know, over the years and, and you know, the way, you know, how they get pay rises, even when no other public servants do. And so you sort of think, cool, like an MP should be paid if that is a full-time job, but should they just, should they be paid what a teacher is paid, right? Should they be paid what we consider a sort of average, like public serv- public sector kind of public servant wage, right? I mean, I have so many teach- teacher friends and you know, maybe after years and years of years of teaching, they might be coming on to like 40k or something like that, right in London. Um, and if any, I think MPs are on what 70, 80, I don't even, I don't even, and that and and the expense allowance on top, right? Whereas you'd think if you're earning 70, you cover your own bus fare or whatever. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think I think that's that's the medium that I would come at it for more creating an environment where we have sort of a playing field that's level enough that anyone can do it. So things like childcare, like you say, um, because it tends to be the people that are doing the most anyway that want to then also take on these kind of things. So just making that slightly more accessible. But the other thing you mentioned, which was the outside inside, I think is really interesting as well. And obviously something we've grappled with a lot. And I found it interesting, um, actually, that I think both of them spoke slightly to the liberation and freedoms of being outside slightly in being able to lobby and campaign and having that sustained energy. But also they spoke about um, always feeling like there was a, a slight having to ask permission when they were outside versus when they're inside. And OK, maybe they are involved in the process of making the decisions and they're the ones that say yes or no to what happens. But the pace of change then seems to slow quite a lot. And the excitement of the change seems to slow quite a lot. Um, and actually change can become quite boring and long, <laughs> or at least it's process. Change is exciting, but the process can become quite boring and long. Um, and it becomes more bureaucracy and policies and procedures versus being on the streets and demanding things. I think they both, and in particular Pippa, actually echoed um, some of the advice that was given in our systems episode as well by our two guests, which was around figure out what's going to nourish you and keep you going. So if you are going to do something like this, you know, figure out what people you want to be spending time with, you know, what loved ones you need there to kind of prop you up, you know, do you need good food? Do you need exercise? Do you need to go for long walks? Do you need to laugh? Do you need to go and get hammered sometimes? Like, what is (laughs) it that's going to kind of get you through it? And I remember Layla kind of in particular also speaking about that in our systems episode. So I think it's something about understanding yourself and how much you can take and what you then need to keep you going. And I think even just about building up support around you, solidarity around you, and Pippa speaks about drawing upon other people's skills and expertise who might want to help you because they believe in what you're doing. So getting better at kind of asking for help um, and putting yourself as part of an ecosystem, I guess, as opposed to thinking you are completely fighting for this thing by yourself, right? Because if you're doing it well and you're doing it with integrity, then there are definitely people that will believe in you and will support that who also want a better society and might actually be going, thank God that you're doing that and not me. So I will do my best you know, to support you, for example. So there are on a very personal level, also things that I guess they both suggested that you need to be mindful of and that you need to do if you want to enter this kind of race. But maybe we should, um, I mean, if people are listening, I guess, um, you know, both Pippa and Sakina kind of spoke a bit about the things you might do if you do want to consider this. 
Yeah, so um, you can stand as in most elections, you can stand as an independent or as part of a party. So we saw that in the most recent elections. I think in the mayoral elections, there were the most independent candidates um, ever. But if you did want to go as part of a party and there was a party that aligned with enough of your values... It's very simple to join a party, at least in the UK. Most of them, you just go to their websites and there's a button that says join us or join our party. Um, And from what we can see, it seems to be from around £25 and up per year. Um, They have different payment models. So I think Labour was £4 something a month. Conservative was a lump sum of 25, etc, etc. And there are different options for people with different circumstances. So if you're under 25, if you're a student, if you're unemployed. So they do seem to have um, some considerations for accessibility there. And we can also put some practical steps for setting yourself up as a candidate if you're independent as well in the bio, in the episode notes, um, if that's something that interests you. And I think one thing to really bear in mind is that um, actually, especially to get voted at local level, to get voted in as a councillor, it is your local residents that are voting for you. And so if anything, it's probably more important what you've done as a person, as a human being, like, you know, for your community, like for others, you know, as opposed to necessarily being some political whiz who understands every part of the democratic system, because like actually you're being voted in based on what people literally maybe think of you and how much they trust you and how much they feel that you would advocate for them. So actually, if you are the sort of person who's like, oh, yeah, yeah, I might have been, you know, a really like strong member of my community forever, but I've definitely not ever gone into any of those formal institutions. So maybe I won't get it. I actually don't think that's the case. I think this is a place where your legacy um, as a member of your community is what's going to get you there and is what's going to stand you in, in good stead. Exactly. I think local elections, maybe even more so than um, national elections to become an MP um, are very much about that more traditional representation of what politics is and in my opinion should be about so definitely I wouldn't want to do- I hope this episode hasn't discouraged anyone even though we've spoken about <laughs> how hard work it is this is the place um, that that people that are involved in their community should be Please do continue to follow us, subscribe, rate and review. That really helps us to um, grow our platform and get out to more people. Uh, We'd also love, love, love to hear your feedback and thoughts over on our Instagram or our Twitter, which are both at untelevised underscore TV. Or you can email us at talktountelevised at gmail.com. And emailing us really does make a difference. We've had many of our episodes and topics suggested via email and we're actually really open to working with people to shape our episodes if you get in touch with us via email so please do do that and lastly we have a website www.untelevised.co.uk where you can find everything untelevised from our videos to our podcasts to our articles so please do head there as well if you'd like to learn or see more I think that's it, right? <laughs> Thank you, everyone. Yeah, absolutely. Good to, well, we haven't seen you um, and we haven't heard you yet, but you've heard us. So good to be heard again. And, uh, and we, we will um, be, be with you again in a couple of weeks' time. See you guys. Bye. Call me a dreamer, idealistic believer, put my head in a cloud. I don't want to calm down. My feet are planning on starting around.